You know, one of my uh, favorite books um, that I have read is a book written by Corey Tinboom called The Hiding Place. It's an unbelievable story of God's faithfulness in her life. And the year was 1947. It was two years after World War II had concluded. And she was in Munich, Germany, speaking in the basement of a church. And it's in the basement of this church that she was speaking on the forgiveness of God. There was a national mourning taking place in Germany as they felt the weight and the guilt of what their nation had caused all over the world. So she concluded her message on God's forgiveness. People were dismissed and were walking out the back of the room. And out of the corner of her eye, she saw a man walking forward. As soon as she saw him, she recognized him as one of the prison guards at Ravensbrook imprisonment camp where she was placed during the war. She recognized him as the man that she had to walk naked in front of. That this is a man who was one of the many prisoner, uh, prison soldiers, the guards who were responsible for the death of her sister, Betsy. And this man walked up to her and his words were, Wonderful message, Fraulein. You are exactly right. Our sins are thrown into the bottom of the sea. I, too, was at Ravensbrook as a security guard. And I did terrible things. But I am now a Christian. And I know that all of my sins are forgiven. But it would mean so much to me if I could hear it from your lips. He sticks out his hand and says, will you forgive me? What would you do in that moment? Someone is asking for your forgiveness who is responsible not only for your humiliation and degradation, but is responsible for the death of people in your family who has been a part of the committing of some of the most evil acts that the world has ever seen. It was in that moment that Corey Tinboom records in her book, The Hiding Place, how she felt. She said, coldness gripped my heart. In that moment, I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. And she said, I prayed, Jesus, help me. Rejection, betrayal, injustice. These are experiences that no one wants to go through. And yet, when we experience these things, God is faithful. You see it in the life of Corey Tinboom, a woman who experienced tremendous suffering and betrayal, and yet God was faithful. And we get to Acts chapter 7, we encounter a man named Joseph who experienced horrible betrayal, but got to experience the faithfulness of God. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. We're going through the book of Acts together as a faith family, studying this great uh, historical narrative of the early church. If you're, if you're new to the Bible, I want you to know you can go to the front of your Bible. There's a table of contents. There's an Old Testament and a New Testament. The book of Acts is in the New Testament. It's the fifth book. And it, the book of Acts is really volume two of a two-volume set. Volume one being the Gospel of Luke, where Luke gives an 
orderly account. He gives information, details about the life and ministry of Jesus. Then we get to the book of Acts and we see the life and the the ministry of the early church. Where in Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends up into heaven, sits down at the right hand of God the Father. Acts 2, the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost. Acts 3, Peter and John go into the temple where there is a lame beggar sitting there and he's begging for money and he's asking for money. And and Peter uh, looks at him and says, silver and gold I have not, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And the man stands up against walking and jumping and leaping and praising God. His, His health has been restored. And, and, and a huge crowd gathers to see the evidence of this miracle that has just taken place. And it's in this moment that Peter stands up, preaches the gospel, that thousands of people come to faith in Jesus. But the Sanhedrin doesn't like what's happening here. They don't like the fact that Peter's preaching the resurrection, that thousands of people are believing this message. And so they, they arrest them, put them in jail. And the next day they bring them out and tell them, hey, you got to stop preaching the resurrection. And they're like, yeah, that's not going to happen. We know what we've seen in her. We know the gospel is true, and we can't stop proclaiming it. We see in Acts chapter 5 where things get a little bit interesting, where we see a husband and wife who lie to the Holy Spirit about their giving record to the church, and they die right there. Ananias and Sapphira, they drop dead, and fear fills the church over what has just happened. And yet God uses that as a moment in which we see more and more people coming to faith in Christ. Then we see some drama break out in the early church as there's Hellenistic Jews, these Jews with a Greek orientation who are being neglected. Their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And they they're all of a sudden are starting to see some conflict in the early church of a he said, she said, and hey, they're not taking care of us. So the apostles call a timeout. They bring everybody in for a huddle. And they say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to raise up seven men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And these seven guys are going to wait on tables. They're going to care for widows, make sure the physical needs of the church are taken care of so that we don't neglect the preaching of the word and prayer. And so God does that. We raise up, we see seven men are raised up, one of whom is Stephen. Stephen is a man full of the spirit, full of wisdom, and he's an incredible preacher. In fact, he's so eloquent in what he says, the Jews can't stop him. They can only hope to contain him. It's this, this, this incredible thing you see in Acts chapter 6 toward the end and beginning of chapter 7 where we see Stephen, they begin lying about him and making up these false accusations about him because they can't figure out how to stop him. So because of these accusations, Stephen is then brought before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the Jewish high court, the Supreme Court of Israel, about 70 men plus the high priest in which they have the authority to kill you. So imagine you for a moment, you're standing before 70 men who have the authority over your life. What do you say in that moment? Well, Acts chapter 7 is the sermon of Stephen when his life is hanging in the balance. This is the longest sermon that we see recorded in the book of Acts. And what we want to do now for these these several weeks right here as a church is we want to slow down here in chapter 7. I want you to see the treasure map of the Old Testament. As Stephen is preaching to the Sanhedrin, as he's bringing God's word to bear upon these men who've memorized the Old Testament, he's walking them through the historical narrative, but he's, as he's making these stops along the way of this treasure map of Abraham, and as we're going to see Joseph, and as we're going to see later on these different characters, he's pointing to the greatest treasure of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Well, we see here in Acts chapter 7 that he begins with the person of Abraham, how God made a promise of land and descendants. And we saw last week that that is discovered in Jesus, who is the true and greater Abraham, that Jesus is the one who provides land and descendants as a blessing to the nations. But then we get to verse 9, and we see where Stephen makes a pivot in his sermon, and it goes in a different direction. So let's begin reading the scriptures together in Acts chapter 7, beginning with verse 9. The scripture says, The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his troubles. He gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over his whole household. Now a famine and great suffering came, came over all of Egypt and Canaan, and our ancestors could find no food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors there to, the first time. The second time, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Joseph invited his father Jacob and all his relatives, 75 people in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our ancestors died there and were carried back to Shechem and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. We're going to see this morning in the life and ministry of Joseph, a man who suffered unjustly throughout most of his young adult life. And yet we'll see how the Lord enabled him to endure because the Lord's presence was with him. I want you to see these things here in the text. Notice first, God's providence over our trials. God's providence over our trials. Verse 9 tells us the patriarchs. The 12 sons of Jacob sold Joseph into Egypt. Now, the history of verse 9 goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 29. Joseph's father, Jacob, he had two wives, Rachel and Leah. Rachel was his favorite by far, and Joseph was the son of Rachel. So he became Joseph's favorite son out of all 12. Well, fast forward to Genesis 37, and Jacob gives his son Joseph a beautiful multicolored coat. Now, if you could imagine a coat that's almost neon in color, and on the back it has flashing lights that says Jacob's favorite son. Can you imagine how that made the other 11 feel? In fact, the scripture tells us that the other 11 grew angry and they wanted to kill him. They hated Joseph because he was the favorite son. But God had a plan. Now, as a 17-year-old, being the favorite son of Joseph, it made him a little bit cocky. He became a little bit too big for his britches. He was a little bit naive because he shared with his brothers and that a dream had occurred to him that they were going to bow down to him. Well, you can imagine, this made them even more angry, and they hated him even more. But God had a plan. So one day, they throw Joseph into a dry well, they sell him to some traders, they rip up that pretty little coat of his, dip it in goat's blood, take it to their dad to convince him that his favorite son is now dead. Well, Jacob falls into a deep depression, but God had a plan. Meanwhile, Joseph is transported via caravan as a slave headed for Egypt. When he gets to Egypt, he serves as a household servant of a prominent national leader named Potiphar. 
God blessed Joseph, and he became the head servant over all of Potiphar's household until Potiphar's wife began to sexually harass Joseph. Daily, she invited him to come and sleep with her, and daily he would say, no, how can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? One day, she grabs him by the shirt and says, sleep with me. He escapes her grasp, leaving his shirt in her hand. He runs out and just as draws. Potiphar comes home and his wife lies. She frames him. She blames innocent Joseph, who is then thrown in prison for a crime he didn't commit. But God had a plan. While in prison, God blessed Joseph and he became so trusted that the warden put all of the prisoners under his charge. Well, eventually, the king's uh, cupbearer and baker are thrown into the same prison as Joseph. You see, God had a plan. Well, on the same night, each of these two men have dreams, and Joseph accurately interprets for both of them what their dreams would be. He interpreted the cupbearer's dream that he would be restored back to the king's court, which he was. And he rightly interpreted to the baker that he would be beheaded. And he was. But the cupbearer, who's now right there with the king, forgets about Joseph. Two years go by. And Joseph is forgotten in prison. But God had a plan. Pharaoh is then disturbed by two dreams and wants someone to interpret those dreams for him. The cupbearer realizes, oh, snap, I forgot about Joseph. He tells the king, hey, there's this guy in prison named Joseph who interpreted for me and the baker whom you had hung on a rope. He, he rightly interpreted our dreams and he can do the same for you. So Joseph gets called up from the minor leagues. He's brought before Pharaoh in which he rightly interprets Pharaoh's dreams. He tells him there's about to be seven years of abundant food. But then after those seven years, there's going to come seven years of famine. So what you need to do is during these seven years of abundance, you need to save the food so that you can have enough to help carry you through the next seven. Pharaoh's like, that's a great idea. I need someone in charge. You're now the project manager. Now, Joseph is the number two guy over all of Egypt. You see, God had a plan. In the midst of all of Joseph's suffering and betrayals, and that he was forgotten in prison, God had a plan. The Bible says that Joseph was 17 years old when he was thrown into a pit. And he was 30 years old when he was promoted up by Pharaoh. So for 13 years, Joseph endured the betrayal of his brothers, thrown into a dry well, sold into slavery, presumed dead by his father, made a servant in Potiphar's house, falsely accused of sexual harassment, wrongly convicted, thrown in jail, and forgotten in prison for two years. Can you imagine the heartbreak? Can you imagine the frustration of being an innocent man who's having to endure year after year after year of suffering, which you've done nothing wrong? You can imagine the loneliness in jail, the tears that fell from his eyes, the times of confusion, regret, anger, maybe even bitterness. Joseph experienced the worst kind of rejection, and yet he was innocent. 
He was betrayed by family, falsely accused, lied about, thrown in prison, treated like a slave. But not for a single second did God forget about him. You see, though the world may forget about you, God never will. Beloved, God will never forget you. You see, if you are in Christ, the Bible says that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and it cannot be erased. You see, Jesus didn't die just to forget you. You are remembered by God forever. And as you go through hardship in this life, you can have confidence knowing that God will never forget you. But you see, Joseph's suffering points to an even greater injustice. It's indeed the greatest betrayal that has ever occurred. For Jesus was betrayed by one of his own, abandoned by his brothers, falsely accused, lied about, thrown in prison, treated like a slave, and then ultimately taken outside of the city of Jerusalem where criminals go, where he would be crucified alongside the guilty. That indeed the innocent one was treated like a criminal. The guiltless one was being despised like he was guilty. The blameless one was being blamed, but God had a plan. You see, just like Joseph, Jesus' suffering was orchestrated. You see, Jesus' suffering and death appeared as a setback, but instead was a divine setup. Just as God vindicated Joseph, God vindicated Jesus. For on the third day, Jesus got up out of the grave. He is the victor over all of his enemies. He defeated death. He is the champion over all of suffering. And just as the evil that was brought against Joseph, it secured the survival of a nation. The evil brought against Jesus secured salvation for all nations. What we learn from Joseph and what we learn from Jesus is that God often does his greatest work when our lives are going through hardship. Whether it's your fault or not, when you go through hardship, that's often where God shows up and shows off the most. You see, God still works in, through, and despite Our mistakes, sins, and selfishness. God is shaping our character through the hardship. He's conforming us into the image of his son. And he is working through that circumstance to accomplish something bigger than we can see. That's what's happening in the life of Joseph. God is sovereign over the famine. God is sovereign over the abundance of food. And God is providentially working behind the scenes for the good of his people and the fame of his name. And you may be going through a trial. You may be going through a hardship right now. You're in a season of suffering and you're wondering, God, where are you? God, why are you allowing this to happen? God, what what are you up to? I want you to see here in the text that God is providentially working through your trial. He is up to something bigger than you can see. Indeed, Spurgeon said it well when he says, when you cannot trace his hand, you can trust his heart. That God is indeed working providentially through the good and through the bad. And he's working it for your good and for his glory. 
And though it does not feel good, he is working it for your good. All right, so what do we do in the meantime? Simon Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. It's always right to humble yourself before God. We get low before him in good times and in bad. We seek his face in prayer. We posture our hearts in glad submission to the one who knows all things and is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And in due time, he will exalt you. But you've got to get low before you can rise up. Humiliation comes before the exaltation. And through it all, we trust God's providence over our trials. Are you walking through a season of hardship, difficulty, and suffering? Are you experiencing betrayal? Oh, that you would take this season and this moment and say, God, I want to get low before you. I want to humble myself under your mighty, righteous right hand, and I'm going to entrust myself to you. That God, you know the injustice, you see it clearly, you will judge rightly, and so vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. So God, I'm going to take my hands off of the situation, I'm not going to fight back with revenge, I'm going to entrust my soul to a faithful creator. God, I'm entrusting myself to you. That's what it means to get low. And when you humble yourself, he will exalt you in due time. So through the providence, God is working over our trials. But I want you to see the second thing in the text, that there is a sense where we see God's presence in our trials. God is not only sovereign over our trials, he walks with us. He goes through the trial with us. It's amazing. You go back to Genesis 39 when Joseph is being tempted by Potiphar's wife. It says four times there in Genesis 39 how the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 3, the Lord was with him. Verse 23, the Lord was with him. Verse 24, the Lord was with Joseph. We see it again right here in verse 9. It says it right here. Stephen reiterates it before the Sanhedrin. But God was with him. And as Joseph dealt with incredible suffering and difficulty, God never left his side. God was with him in the pit. God was with him when he traveled in the caravan to Egypt. God was with him when he was a slave. God was with him when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. God was with him when he was forgotten in prison for two years. God was with him when he was second in command over all of Egypt. God was with him when the nation went through famine. God was with him when his brothers came and bowed down before him. God was with him when he sat at his father's deathbed and wept. God was with him when he forgave his brothers and God was with him when he died. God is faithful, y'all. You can trust him with every part of your life because he promises, I'm going to be with you through it. He promises his presence in the ups and the downs, in sufferings and celebrations. He is a God who comes to be with us. And we know this ultimately because of the gospel, that Jesus is Emmanuel, God 
with us. That God came and took on human flesh and bone and blood just like us. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. That he knows exactly what it means to experience betrayal, broken friendships, people turning your back on you, people making up lies about you, people who curse you and make fun of you. He knows the pain. And he invites you to bring your pain to him so that he might bring healing. That he is a faithful savior who promises, I'm going to be with you. When you go through your trial, I'm not leaving you for a second. I'm with you every step of the way. So God will be with you when you get on that airplane. God will be with you when you go to that new school. God will be with you when you start that new job. God will be with you when you go to court. God will be with you when you go into surgery. God will be with you when you can't sleep at night. God will be with you when you get the cancer diagnosis. God will be with you when you lose your job. God will be with you when you have to bury your spouse. God will be with you when you go through a miscarriage. God will be with you when you have to have hard conversations. God will be with you when you have to forgive those who have hurt you. God will be be with you when you take your last breath. And God will be with you when he ushers you into his eternal kingdom. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. He is a faithful God who will be with you every step of the way. That there's never a moment that you're ever alone. You may feel lonely, but you are never alone. What did Jesus promise in the Great Commission? I will be with you even to the end of the age. Recently, I've been walking through a trial in my life And God has just comforted me like a warm blanket with Isaiah 41.10, which the Lord says, Do not fear, Kenneth, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. He is a God who is faithful and will never leave your side for a second. He is a God whom you can trust because he is a God who comes and draws near to us even when we go, especially when we go through trials. I was thinking this week how God banished Adam and Eve out of the garden and he sent them out of his presence. Man's relationship with God was now broken because of sin. But through Christ, through his death on the cross, man's relationship with God is restored. So now we have a perfect, permanent relationship with God, not by going to a tabernacle or to a temple, but to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And through Jesus, God brings us back to himself. And when we do, he comes and takes up residence inside of us. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Or in Galatians 1, 15, it pleased God to reveal his son in me. Or Galatians 2, 20, for I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but the life I now live, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, that he lives in me. 
In Colossians 1.27, the mystery among the Gentiles, Christ in you, the hope of glory. When you go through hardships, God promises, I'm going to be with you every step of the way. No matter what you face, he is a faithful God. And you can trust him because he's going to be with you every moment of the day. So that when Psalm 23, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. He promises his presence. That's how faithful God is to you. He'll be with you every step of the way. Third and finally, I want you to notice in the text, God's purpose for our trials. The dreams that Joseph had were true. Egypt had seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine. Eventually, Jacob and his sons were getting hungry. So Jacob says, all right, boys, head south. Benjamin, you stay here with me. Rachel's other son, the new favorite. You other 10, head on down. Go to Egypt. I've heard they've got food. They come down there. They approach the guy who's in charge of the food. They have no idea who it is. They bow down with their faces to the ground. Same dream that Joseph said would happen is now being realized. Little did they know that the the man sitting above them was their brother. And we see God's faithfulness and his providence over the whole thing. In fact, I want to encourage you, go read Genesis 37 through 50 and just see God's providence in the life of Joseph. Unbelievable. But it's amazing to me how Joseph shows mercy to his betrayers. And he invites his brothers, his father, his entire family. Y'all, move south. It's a good saying for down here, right? Y'all move south. I'll take care of you. And Joseph got to be restored back to his father. Incredible emotional moment. You can imagine a father thinking your son is dead. And more than a decade later, you get reconciled and restored back. Well, Jacob dies and Joseph's brothers, they begin to fear retribution. They're thinking, we were protected while Jacob was alive. Our dad, when he had, a, he had our back, we'd be okay, but he's dead now. Revenge is coming. But instead, Joseph forgives them and tells them, Genesis 50, verse 20, great verse in the Bible for you to highlight. Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph told his brothers, you planned evil against me, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Some of your translations might say um, the salvation of many. You see, God's people are saved. The promise that God made to Abraham that there would be a, uh, be a generation, that there would be progeny that would come through him, it's protected, it's preserved because of Joseph. And the promise of a future blessing, which is ultimately found in Jesus, the fulfillment of what God said would happen through Abraham, it's protected because of Joseph, the true and greater one who is pointing us to Jesus, the true and greater Joseph. Jesus is the one who offers forgiveness of sins, just as Joseph forgives his brothers. We know there's an even greater forgiveness that's realized in Christ And we know that even when we sin in the evil that we commit, God is faithful to turn it around 
for our good and for his glory. Now that you're in Christ, Kenneth, what are you calling us to? Well, as doers of the word, it's your impact point. Daily remind yourself, the Lord is with me, the Lord is in me, and the Lord is for me. You have to remind yourself daily or you'll forget. You and I have spiritual amnesia. We forget God's faithfulness all the time. This is why over and over and over, God says, remember, remember, remember. Why? We forget. And we need to be reminded. And the good news is that when you go through your trial, you don't go through it alone. So what did Corey do in that moment? This former Nazi officer has his hand outstretched before her. How does she respond? Here's what she said. Woodenly and mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. And I cried out, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. This is the work of God in the gospel. That he is able to take former enemies and make us friends. And he is a God who is faithful, who will providentially work through a situation, promise his presence with us in the situation, and his purpose to accomplish his will over the situation because God works all things for our good and the fame of his name. 